Welcome to Crushing Disappointment. In this episode, I'm talking to myself about the anarchist Emma Goldman. Uh, this was a crush that began in my late teens when I read her autobiography, Living My Life. Um, I'd been struggling with a lot of the books that I'd been required to read on my literature course, and Living My Life was very, very readable and engaging. In particular, it spoke to the wanky sides of my personality that I was indulging in my late teens. I guess my militant atheism being one of them. Um, I also enjoyed her opinions on relationships and would sort of espouse those to people despite having never had one, uh, but feeling like I sort of knew good stuff, even though I didn't. Um, For this episode, I'm going to go through Goldman's autobiography and then try and link it to some of her theory. Uh, I'd not tackled any of her theory before, so to get a or to have a start on that, I listened to a podcast by loyalbooks.com in which the narrator reads essays included in Goldman's 1910 book, Anarchism and of Essays. I found this really enjoyable as well, and I'll link to that podcast in the description. Uh, but it became very clear early on that I didn't have a good grasp of some of Goldman's ideas. For example, her thoughts on individualism were pretty perplexing to me. So this is not going to be a great insight into that. Um, Emma Goldman was an anarchist. Uh, the book that I listened to includes essays on political violence, prisons, patriotism, prostitution, women's suffrage, marriage and love. Uh, she wrote and spoke on other subjects, and these ideas all pretty much seem linked to her anarchism. So the first essay in that book, she writes that anarchism really stands for the liberation of the human mind from the dominion of religion, the liberation of the human body from the dominion of property, liberation from the shackles and restraint of government. Anarchism stands for a social order based on the free grouping of individuals for the purpose of producing real social wealth, an order that will guarantee to every human being free access to the earth and full enjoyment of the necessities of life, according to individual desires, tastes and inclinations. So now you're uh, an expert in anarchism. Um, so looking at someone's life through their own perspective obviously comes with pros and cons. Uh, most obviously, I haven't checked if her accounts are reliable. However, I decided on this approach because it was through her book that I first became aware of Goldman. And so that's the link to Crushes here that we're going for. However, once I'd finished putting all my notes together from her book, I realized that I was just going to be reading out a load of quotes. While Goldman's life is inherently interesting, and so I don't think this podcast is boring, uh, it's it's a quite a shoddily made podcast. I guess like if I just read out Lord of the Rings, like that's not a well-made podcast. That's me reading stuff out. So to try and offer something a little bit different, I read Feminist Interpretations of Emma Goldman, which is a collection of essays edited by Penny A. Weiss and Loretta Kensinger. I took all the quotes from the various essays and then tried to add them to sections that were relevant. And then when I went to add the author's names to the quotes, I realised that I'd mostly just taken quotes from one essay. So that was pretty disappointing so it's still pretty shoddily made essentially i've made a wikipedia page that ends abruptly uh the episode stopped when goldman visited britain when she was 26 for no other reason than the fact that the podcast was getting too long it's probably worth noting as well that there's um quite drawn out descriptions of violence midway through um the beginning of this podcast begins with some of the abuse that emma received as a child and young adult uh, some of that is sexual so that's a heads up for that also, with some of Goldman's more radical stances, I, I originally had bits where I would sort of give my own opinion on it, but that wasn't good. Essentially, the reason why I did that originally was because I was sort of scared that my uh, weak-willed friends, which is all of them, 
would misunderstand it and become like I don't know serial killers. Um, this was a crap idea of mine, so I've removed it and I've taken the controversial decision to just assume that you won't do that. Um, I can't think if there's anything else to mention. Here's the crush. Emma Goldman was born on the 27th of June, 1869. And if that date is just numbers to you, it's exactly halfway through Queen Victoria's reign, if you were taught to conceive of time in monarchs like I was. It's also the year the first Sainsbury's opened. Those are obviously both facts about the United Kingdom. Uh, Emma Goldman was born in Kovno in the Russian Empire, which is now Konas, uh, the second largest city in Lithuania. Uh, she was born into an Orthodox Jewish family with two older sisters and three younger brothers. Goldman's autobiography begins with her moving to New York at 20 years old, and she at times seems to consider her life before that to be irrelevant. However, she does return back to her youth to outline inciting incidents, whether these be to do with her sexual politics or the hardships she experienced that led to her anarchist philosophy. For example, in the second chapter, Goldman explains that her first erotic sensations occurred when she was six years old. She was entranced by a young peasant Petruska who looked after her family's cows and sheep. Playing with Petruska and listening to him play his flute created a peculiar sensation where she would be filled with exultation followed by a blissful release. After an altercation with her father, Petruska was sent away and Goldman was devastated. She states, For weeks afterwards I kept dreaming of Petruska, the meadows, the music, and reliving the joy and ecstasy of our play. One morning I felt myself torn out of sleep. Mother was bending over me, tightly holding my right hand. In an angry voice she cried, If I ever find your hand again like that, I'll whip you, you naughty child. So I'd imagine that most autobiographies published in the 1930s didn't include the author recalling the first time they masturbated, but the fact that Goldman deemed this important enough to include both the act and her mother's response shows how she was trying to disrupt what she deemed to be harmful social norms. In her 1910 essays, this is years later, The Traffic in Women, Goldman would write, Our moralists are scandalised at the very thought that the nature of a girl should assert itself. Um, another of Goldman's foundational memories involved the treatment of a peasant. One day I came upon a half-naked human body being lashed with a knout, which was a type of whip. Um, it threw me into hysterics, and for days I was haunted by the horrible picture. At eight years old, Goldman was sent to live with her grandmother and uncle in order for her to attend school. Her uncle then kept the money meant for her education and sent her to work. On one occasion, she refused to do as she was asked and she was kicked down the stairs and she was injured so badly that her father Abraham was called to take her back. This was one of the few moments in which Goldman was glad to see her father as he too was physically abusive. He would often beat his children to punish them and Emma, being rebellious from a young age, would be whipped. Outside of her family, Goldman also had to endure teachers who had sexually and physically abused their students. Goldman explains that at 11 years old, the approach of puberty gave me my first consciousness of the effect of men on me. Upon experiencing her period, Goldman woke in great agony. She called for her mother Taub, who drew back the bed covers before striking Emma. This is necessary for a girl, said her mother, when she becomes a woman as a protection against disgrace. In 1882, while living in St. Petersburg, Goldman's father lost his job as his cousin's dry goods store went out of business. The cousin owned a glove factory, and so Goldman, who would have been around 13 years old, began to work there. She would continue working in factories when she moved to America. At 15, Goldman for several months would meet with a handsome fellow of about 20. She details one of their encounters, which she refers to as a violent contact. More contemporary biographers 
have referred to it as rape. Goldman states that, Strange, I felt no shame, only a great shock at the discovery that the contact between man and woman could be so brutal and so painful. I walked out in a daze, bruising every nerve. After that, I always felt between two fires in the presence of men. Their lure remained strong, but it was always mingled with violent revulsion. I could not bear to have them touch me. During the same period, her father tried desperately to marry her off. In response to Goldman's pleas to continue her studies, he threw her French grammar book into the fire. Goldman stoutly maintained she would never marry for anything but love. And this was one of the reasons she moved to America with her sister Helena. In her 1914 essay, Marriage and Love, she would describe a girl being prepared for marriage as the mute beast fattened for slaughter. Also, in her 1906 essay, The Child and Its Enemies, Goldman would write that, From earliest infancy, every effort is being made to cramp human emotion and originality of thought in the individual into a straitjacket, with girls being taught that marriage is her ultimate goal, and boys being poisoned with blood-curdling stories about the Germans, the French, the Italians, etc., which entail that when the child has reached manhood, he is fully saturated with the belief that he is chosen by the Lord himself to defend his country. Schools she described as engaging in legal trickery, spiritual debasement, and systematic indoctrination of the servile spirit. The sisters arrived in New York City's Castle Garden on the 29th of December 1885. They then travelled to Rochester to be with their sister Lena, her husband and baby. Eventually, due to the rise of anti-Semitism in St. Petersburg, the whole family would move to Rochester. Um, but before they all moved, Emma heard Lena and her husband discuss the expense of the house and whether Emma's contribution was enough. As a result, Goldman went to the owner of the clothes factory where she worked and asked for a pay rise. On his desk, she noted that he had some American beauties, which are roses. Uh, one of those flowers cost more than half of Emma's week's earnings. In response to her demands, the factory owner stated that Goldman had expensive tastes and did not grant her the pay rise. She left his employ and managed to obtain work at another factory that offered higher pay. At this factory, she sat next to Jacob Kirshner, who would become her first husband. As Goldman was still learning English, Kirshner's Russian was like music to her. While finding him attractive, Goldman realised from the beginning that they were at opposite poles, with nothing in common, not even sexual blending. This was most obvious on their wedding night, in which Goldman's feverish excitement of the day, her suspense and ardent anticipation, gave way to a feeling of utter bewilderment. She states, Jacob lay trembling near me. He was impotent. Goldman eventually managed to convince Kirshner to go to the doctor, where he was told that it would take considerable time to build up his manhood. During this time, Goldman's passion subsided. Nearly 30 years later, in her essay, Marriage and Love, Goldman asked, can there be anything more outrageous than the idea that a healthy, grown woman full of life and passion must deny nature's demand, must subdue her most intense craving, undermine her health and break her spirit, must stunt her vision, abstain from the depth and glory of sex experience until a good man comes along to take her unto himself as a wife? That is precisely what marriage means. How can such an arrangement end except in failure? Uh, writing more generally about marriage in that same essay, Goldman writes that marriage condemns women to lifelong dependency, to parasitism, to complete uselessness, and that it annihilates women's social consciousness, paralyzes her imagination, and then imposes its gracious protection, which is in reality a snare, a travesty on human character. She learns soon enough 
that the home, though not so large a prison as the factory, has more solid doors and bars. It has a keeper so faithful that Nout can escape him. The most tragic part, however, is that the home no longer frees her from wage slavery, it only increases her task. Laurie Jo Marceau, in her essay A Feminist Search for Love, Emma Goldman on the Politics of Marriage, Love, Sexuality and the Feminine, writes that, Chronicled in Goldman's many public speeches and political writings, we witness her philosophical commitment to an anarchist feminism that rejects marriage and the conventional nuclear family. In conjunction with this philosophy, Goldman lived a life of free and open sexual expression, engaging in direct action on behalf of campaigns for birth control, free speech, and the complete acceptance of unconventional sexual practices. At the same time, she neither rejects nor condemns romantic love. She places intimate connections with others as central to her life and her politics. Candace Falk, in her essay, Let Icons Be Bygones, Emma Goldman the Grand Expositor, states that Goldman's speeches featured provocative ideas about sexuality and a genuine concern for women's freedom. Her promotion of women's independence, especially from the bonds of marriage, along with her advocacy of sexual liberation, often were experienced as more threatening to the upholders of the status quo than were her anarchist ideas about retaliatory violence. Falk adds that cultural mores became the focus of reactive fear, perhaps because the revolution in the role of women within the family seemed more imminent, inevitable and widely accepted than the prospect of a violent revolutionary transformation of the entire industrial capitalist economy. What has become known as the Haymarket Riot, Massacre or Affair occurred on the 4th of May 1886 at the Haymarket Square in Chicago. Uh, This is a massive historical event that I'm going to try and condense into a few sentences. And the information I got was just from Wikipedia and the History Channel, so this isn't going to be extensive or necessarily accurate, but it'll give you an idea. So, a crowd that has been reported as being between 600 and 3,000 people, depending on the source, congregated in support of workers striking for the eight-hour working day and to protest the killing of a striker by the police the day before. As the protests continued in the rain and the numbers reduced to around 300 people, 200 police officers began to disperse the crowd before turning violent. At this point, a bomb was thrown at the police and seven police officers were killed. They retaliated with gunfire, killing four and injuring many in the crowd. Uh, It's never been discovered who threw the bomb. Uh, The History Channel's website, which interestingly doesn't use the word anarchists at all, states that this led to a national wave of xenophobia as hundreds of foreign-born radicals and labour leaders were rounded up in Chicago and elsewhere. Uh, So continuing with the quote, A grand jury eventually indicted 31 suspected Labour radicals in connection with the bombing and eight men were convicted in a sensational and controversial trial. Of all those men, only two were present when the bomb went off as they had just finished giving their speeches at the protest. Judge Joseph E. Gary imposed the death sentence on seven of the men and the eighth was sentenced to 15 years in prison. On November 11th, 1887, Samuel Fielden, Adolf Fischer, August Spees and Albert Parson were executed. Of the three others sentenced to death, one died by suicide on the eve of his execution and the other two had their death sentences commuted to life imprisonment by Illinois Governor Richard J. Oglesby. Governor Oglesby was reacting to widespread public questioning of their guilt, which later led his successor to pardon fully the three activists still living in 1893. After the death of the Chicago anarchists, Goldman was divorced from Kirshner from the same rabbi who had married them. She left for New Haven, but due to insufficient funds, had to return to Rochester. 
Here Kirshner would seek her out every day, eventually threatening to kill himself if she did not take him back. On one occasion, he showed her a bottle of poison. This frightened Goldman and she remarried him. Without his knowledge, she took up dressmaking so that she would not be dependent on him. Therefore, after a few months, Goldman decided to leave her husband, a decision that turned her family and community against her. Only her sister Helena stood by her and funded Emma's trip to New York. Marceau argues that because the options for women were so limited, marriage may have been preferable to even less desirable alternatives. Therefore, Marceau states that, seeking to articulate a vision of true freedom, Goldman offered her own life as an example to others. In her two-volume autobiography, Living My Life, Goldman speaks candidly about her early and varied sexual experiences, her longings and desires, and her many passionate love affairs, often with younger men. As stated, Goldman begins her autobiography on the 15th of August 1889, the day she arrives in New York City at 20 years old. So hopefully this podcast will be a little less, little less bitty now and I'll start proper. So um, on the day of her arrival, she met with the anarchist Halela Solitorov, whom she had once heard lecture in New Haven. Solitorov took her to Saks Cafe, which he saw as the headquarters of the East Side radicals, socialists and anarchists, as well as of the young Yiddish writers and poets. While at the cafe, Goldman heard a powerful voice ask for an extra large steak and an extra cup of coffee. Having so little money, Goldman asked Solitarov, who is that glutton? He laughed aloud. That is Alexander Berkman. He can eat for three, but he rarely has enough money for much food. When he has, he eats sacks out of all supplies. To Goldman, Berkman was no more than a boy, hardly 18, but with the neck and chest of a giant. His jaw was strong, made more pronounced by his thick lips, studious forehead and intelligent eyes. After their introduction, Berkman told Goldman that Johann Most, anarchist orator and newspaper editor, was speaking that night and asked if she would like to come with him. So Most spoke in a small hall behind a saloon. When he entered, Goldman's first impression was one of revulsion, finding only his eyes to be soothing. However, his speech completely changed her perception, transforming him into some primitive power, radiating hatred and love, strength and inspiration. He denounced American conditions generally, and specifically the Haymarket tragedy and the execution of the Chicago anarchists. The impact of his speech on Goldman was so profound that she was unable to speak coherently when introduced to him afterwards. Goldman would get another chance to speak to most when Berkman took her to the offices of Freiheit, German for Freedom, the anarchist journal that most produced. There, Goldman explained that she had come to New York because it was the centre of the anarchist movement and because she had heard of Most as its leading spirit. From this, Most would become one of Goldman's mentors, enabling her to become a great public speaker. Uh, the third person that I'm going to mention is Modest Stein, who is called Fedya in both Goldman and Berkman's memoirs. Um, they did that in order to protect him and his family. Um, I'm also going to call him Fedya just because I'm quoting from Goldman's autobiography, so I don't want to keep changing what I'm calling him. Um, but anyway, um, Goldman was introduced to Fedger by Berkman, who stated that a good anarchist is one who lives only for the cause, and that's cause with a capital C, and gives everything to it. My friend here, he indicated Fedger, is still too much of a bourgeois to realise that. He is a mammakin sin, mother's spoilt darling, who even accepts money from home. And this is um, from Goldman's autobiography. So he continued to explain why it was inconsistent for a revolutionary to have anything to do with his bourgeois parents or relatives. 
His only reason for tolerating his friend Fedya's inconsistency, he added, was that he gave most of what he received from home to the movement. If I'd let him, he'd spend all his money on useless things. Beautiful, he calls them, wouldn't you, Fedya? He turned to his friend, patting him on the back affectionately. At the cafe, Gobin became aware of Fedya watching and studying her face. And so, to hide her embarrassment, asked Berkman, why should one not love beauty? Flowers, for instance, music, the theatre, beautiful things. I did not say one should not, Berkman replied. I said it was wrong to spend money on such things when the movement is in so much need of it. It is inconsistent for an anarchist to enjoy luxuries when the people live in poverty. But beautiful things are not luxuries, I insisted. They are necessaries. Life would be unbearable without them. Yet at heart, I felt that Berkman was right. The importance of beautiful things is a key part of Goldman's ideals, and her opinion on this matter solidifies sometime after this conversation. Uh, but on this night before they left, Fedya, the artist, asked to show Goldman the city at some time. Goldman writes, The next day, Fedya took me to Central Park. Along Fifth Avenue, he pointed out the various mansions, naming their owners. I had read about those wealthy men, their affluence and extravagance, while the masses lived in poverty. I expressed my indignation at the contrast between those splendid palaces and the miserable tenements of the east side. Yes, it is a crime that the few should have all, the many nothing, the artist said. My main objections, he continued, is that they have such bad taste. Those buildings are ugly. Berkman's attitude to beauty came to my mind. You don't agree with your chum on the need and importance of beauty in one's life, do you? I asked. Indeed, I do not. But then, my friend is a revolutionist above everything else. I wish I could also be, but I am not. Uh, This is Goldman still. I liked his frankness and simplicity. He did not stir me as Berkman did when speaking of revolutionary ethics. Fedya awakened in me the mysterious yearning I used to feel in my childhood at the sight of the sunset turning the poplar meadows golden in its dying glow, as the sweet music of Petruska's flute did also. So, just to recap, so that we know everyone who's been introduced so far, so Solitaroff, the anarchist that Goldman met when she came to New York, doesn't feature again in this podcast, so you can forget him. I mean, not completely, but this, from this podcast, I mean, he's, he's not going to appear anymore. Um, Alexander Berkman is the guy who's most into the cause, with a capital C. He and Goldman became lovers, and she calls him Sasha. So um, I'm going so to use Sasha as well. So Berkman and Sasha are interchangeable in this thing. They're the same person. Johann Most is the speaker who runs Freiheit. Goldman states that he became her idol and that she worshipped him. She is taken aback by his speeches and doesn't believe she will ever be as good as him. And Modestine is the artist who's referred to as Fedya in Goldman and Berkman's memoirs, who the guy who loves beautiful things. Um, cool. So at this point, Goldman, Sasha, Fedya, and the anarchist Helen Minken all rented a place together. From the very first, says Goldman, we agreed to share everything, to live like real comrades. Um, I'm going to quote quite a bit from her now. So, one morning Fedya asked me to pose for him. I experienced no sense of shame at standing naked before him. He worked away for a time and neither of us talked. Then he began to fidget about and finally said he would have to stop. He could not concentrate. The mood was gone. I went back behind the screen to dress. I had not quite finished when I heard violent weeping. I rushed forward and found Fedya stretched on the sofa, his head buried in the pillow, sobbing. As I bent over him, he sat up and broke loose in a torrent, said he loved me, that he had from the very beginning that he had tried to keep in the background for Sasha's sake. He had struggled fiercely against his feeling for me, 
but he knew now that it was of no use. He would have to move out. I sat by him, holding his hand in mine and stroking his soft wavy hair. Fedger had always drawn me to him by his thoughtful attention, his sensitive response and his love of beauty. Now I felt something stronger stirring within me. Could it be love for Fedger, I worried? Could one love two persons at the same time? I loved Sasha. At that very moment, my resentment at his harshness gave way to yearnings for my strong, arduous lover. Yet, I felt Sasha had left something untouched in me, something Fedger could perhaps wake into life. Yes, it must be possible to love more than one. All I had felt for the boy artist must have really been love without my being aware of it till now, I decided. I asked Fedger what he thought of love for two or even for more persons at once. He looked up in surprise and said he didn't know. He'd never loved anyone before. His love for me had absorbed him to the exclusion of anyone else. He knew he could not care for another woman while he loved me. And he was certain that Sasha would not want to share me. His sense of possession was too strong. I resented the suggestion of sharing. I insisted that one can only respond to what the other is able to call out. I did not believe that Sasha was possessive. One who so fervently wanted freedom and preached it so wholeheartedly could never object to my giving myself to someone else. We agreed that whatever happened, there must be no deception. We must go to Sasha and tell him frankly how we felt. He would understand. That evening, the four flatmates had dinner together before heading out to a lecture. Goldman and Sasha returned home first. There, Sasha told Goldman that he loved her dearly, that he wanted her to have beautiful things, that he too loved beauty, but he loved the cause more than anything else in the world. For that, he would forgo even their love, yes, and his very life. He spoke of the famous Russian revolutionary catechism that demanded of the true revolutionist that he give up his home, parents, sweetheart, children, everything dear to one's being. He agreed with it absolutely, and he was determined to allow nothing to stand in the way. His intensity, his uncompromising fervour, irritated and yet drew me like a magnet. Whatever longing I had experienced when near Fedya was silent now. Sasha, my own wonderful, dedicated, obsessed Sasha, was calling. I felt entirely his. At this time, most continued to push Goldman towards being a public speaker. He informed her that she needed to speak at Rochester, Buffalo and Cleveland about the campaign for the eight-hour working day. Uh, I guess this campaign is, is a good example of how ideas that are one-time radical are normalised by the work of activists. However, most told Goldman to criticise the campaign because even if the eight-hour day were established, there would be no actual gain. On the contrary, it would serve only to distract the masses from the real issue, the struggle against capitalism, against the wage system, for a new society. In the cab on the way to Grand Central Station to drop her off, most told Goldman that he yearned to take her in his arms and asked if he might. Goldman nodded and writes in her autobiography that Conflicting thoughts and emotions possessed me. The speeches I was going to make, Sasha, Fedger, my passion for the one, my budding love for the other. But I yielded to most trembling embrace, his kisses covering my mouth as of one famished with thirst. I let him drink. I could have denied him nothing. He loved me, he said. He had never known such longing for any woman before. Of late years, he had not even been attracted to anyone. A feeling of growing age was overcoming him, and he felt worn from the long struggle and the persecution he had endured. More depressing even was the consciousness that his best comrades misunderstood him. But my youth had made him young, my ardour had raised his spirit. 
My whole being had awakened him to a new meaning in life. I was his Blancomf, his blue eyes. He wanted me to be his own, his helpmate, his voice. Goldman then departed for Rochester. Uh, it had been six months since she had left Rochester to move to New York. Goldman was unhappy with her performances in Rochester and Buffalo and considered not continuing to Cleveland. When speaking in Cleveland, however, a man with white hair and a lean, haggard face rose to speak. He said that he understood my impatience with such small demands as a few hours less a day or a few dollars more a week. It was legitimate for young people to take time lightly. But what were men of his age to do? They were not likely to live to see the ultimate overthrow of the capitalist system. Were they also to forego the release of perhaps two hours a day from the hated work? That was all they could hope to see realised in their lifetime. Should they deny themselves even that small achievement? Should they never have a little more time for reading or being out in the open? Why not be fair to people chained to the block? The man's earnestness, his clear analysis of the principle involved in the eight-hour struggle brought home to me the falsity of most position. I realised I was committing a crime against myself and the workers by serving as a parrot repeating most views. I understood why I had failed to reach my audience. I had taken refuge in cheap jokes and bitter thrusts against the toilers to cover up my own inner lack of conviction. My first public experience did not bring the result most had hoped for, but it taught me a valuable lesson. It cured me somewhat of my childlike faith in the infallibility of my teacher and impressed on me the need of independent thinking. Goldman, according to Falk, would become considered among the world's most accomplished speakers. Uh, Falk explains that she was adept at connecting to an audience and reaching beyond the ordinary definition of politics. This Russian Jewish immigrant had the remarkable capacity to break down barriers of class, gender, race and ethnic divides in the audience she addressed by identifying a collective desire for liberation. Titillating her listeners with challenging ideas they did not dare give voice to, Goldman set the bar for freedom high. Uh, Falk also adds that, although she was a staunch critic of gradualism and of liberal electoral politics, the fact that she worked so remarkably well with single-issue advocates of civil liberties, workers' rights and women's freedom, often even successfully prodding them just a bit further to the left, was among her most appealing popular draws. Uh, back in New York, Goldman met with Most in a restaurant and tried on multiple occasions to tell him about her trip. Uh, he responded that he'd received reports, uh, to which he responded with, what are my own reactions? Don't you want me to tell you about that? Uh, he responded, yes, another time. Uh, now he wanted only to feel me near his Blonkov, his little girl woman. I flared up, declaring I would not be treated as a mere female. I blurted out that I would never again follow blindly, that I had made a fool of myself, that the five-minute speech of the old worker had convinced me more than all his persuasive phrases. I talked on, my listener keeping very silent. When I had finished, he called the waiter and paid the bill. I followed him out. On the street, he burst out in a storm of abuse. He had reared a viper, a snake, a heartless coquette, who had played him like a cat with a mouse. He had sent me out to plead his cause and I had betrayed him. I was like the rest, but he would not stand for it. He would rather cut me out of his heart right now and have me as a lukewarm friend. Who is not with me is against me, he shouted. I will not have it otherwise. A great sadness overwhelmed me, as if I had just experienced an irreparable loss. Now back in New York, Goldman's role in the anarchist movement was to press upon women the need of making common cause with their striking brothers. This was most easily achieved through the organising of purpose meetings, concerts, socials and dances. During this time, Goldman became more and more comfortable and confident with public speaking. Within a few weeks, her work 
brought scores of girls in the ranks of the strikers. I became alive once more. At the dancers, I was one of the most untiring and gayest. One evening, a cousin of Sasha, a young boy, took me aside. With a grave face, as if he were about to announce the death of a dear comrade, he whispered to me that it did not behoove an agitator to dance, certainly not with such reckless abandon anyway. It was undignified for one who was on the way to become a force in the anarchist movement. My frivolity would only hurt the cause. I grew furious at the impudent interference of the boy. I told him to mind his own business. I was tired of having the cause constantly thrown in my face. I did not believe that a cause which stood for a beautiful ideal, for anarchism, for release and freedom from conventions and prejudice, should demand the denial of life and joy. I insisted that our cause could not expect me to become a nun and that the movement should not be turned into a cloister. If it meant that, I did not want it. I want freedom, the right to self-expression, everybody's right to beautiful, radiant things. Anarchism meant that to me, and I would live it in spite of the whole world. Prisons, persecution, everything. Yes, even in spite of the condemnation of my own closest comrades, I would live my beautiful ideal. That quote is mostly known through the shortened, misquoted version of If I can't dance, I don't want to be in your revolution, or If I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution, or If I can't dance to it, it's not my revolution. Uh, you may have seen that on t-shirts, posters, or uh, I don't know, mugs, or on Facebook posts. Um, Alex Kate Shulman takes some responsibility for this extrapolation from the authentic text to familiar paraphrase in her essay Dances with Feminists, published in Women's Review of Books, volume 9, I think that's my Roman numerals, number 3, December 1991. So she says, in 1973, after decades of obscurity during which all of her works were out of print, Emma Goldman was suddenly returning to the public eye as a hero of women's liberation. Uh, Jack Frager, an anarchist and printer who had heard Shulman lecture on Goldman's feminism, asked for Shulman's help with a project to print Emma Goldman t-shirts. These were to be hawked in Central Park at the huge upcoming festival celebrating the end of the Vietnam War. Uh, the sales of these t-shirts would then raise funds for the cause. As Shulman had recently published two books on Goldman, she was asked if she might lend a glossy photo from which to print and also to suggest a phrase or slogan from Emma's writings suitable for emblazoning on t-shirts. Uh, Shulman writes that she was delighted by the opportunity to publicise Emma's feminist side, particularly among followers sometimes reluctant to share her with any movement not strictly anarchist. Therefore, she provided a photograph and referred Frager to several prose passages, particularly the dancing episode, which seemed to Shulman to embody Emma's most lively feminist spirit. When Shulman went to pick up her shirts along with the photograph, she was surprised to find a succinct abridgment of Emma's dance story spread broadly across the shirt. The first and most common version of the now famous slogan, if I can't dance, I don't want to be in your revolution. So Shulman continues, and I've got a long quote. I searched Emma's text for the statement, it was nowhere to be found. But Jack was so pleased, the festival was so soon, Emma looked so lively printed in red and black on a variety of rich background colours that I hadn't the heart to register an objection in the name of scholarship. After all, the apocrypha appeared on a mere gross or two of t-shirts, which surely could not require the same standards of accuracy as, say, book blurbs extracted from book reviews, and the sentiment expressed was pure Emma indeed. But history and fashion exploded so quickly in those hungrily feminist days that the slogan on the original shirt run was soon dispersed and copied and broadcast nationwide and abroad, underground and above, 
sometimes absent a text to be checked against, changing along the way like a child's game of telephone, until Jack's initial light-hearted liberties had taken wing as quotable law and soared up into the realms of myth. Penny A. Weiss and Loretta Kensinger, in the introduction to their collection of essays, state that, Within popular movements, Goldman's ideas are most often reduced to slogans, buttons and bumper stickers. Um, something that perhaps I'm doing again with this. Um, however, while the dancing statement is not a real quote, it does, according to Falk, dispel the fear of an austere authoritarian revolution, demanding joy instead as an integral part of the process of creating a world of new possibilities. In relation to why interest in Goldman re-emerged in the 1970s, Falk states that Goldman's ideas about women's freedom and sexuality and her bold critique of marriage resonated strongly with a generation set on countering cultural norms associated with domination and oppression. Her celebration of freedom and of beauty and her positive spirit of rebellion against the forces of oppression seemed a perfect fit. When her essays and memoir were brought back into print, the books elicited a loyal following of kindred spirits. Moving back from second wave feminism to the first wave, I'm going to briefly touch on Goldman's view of the suffrage movement. Uh, essentially, Goldman didn't feel that gaining the vote would be sufficient to change women's position in society. It would, in the words of Marceau, only constitute a partial freedom, an empty promise. Goldman repeatedly insisted that the vote would never and could never fundamentally transform women's lives. Folk explains it as follows. Goldman was never a believer in the idea that the vote for women promised their equality and independence, but she was happy to ride the wave of interest in women's political participation. She set herself firmly against the powerful thrust of activism for suffrage with the pronouncement that true emancipation entailed a complex unravelling of the bonds of outer and inner constraints. It was a process that could never be achieved in a voting booth alone. Instead, she addressed the social and economic conditions that held women back and in so doing positioned herself against those who sanctified the trappings of traditional family life. Another issue that Goldman had with the movement was that, according to Folk, she rejected the suffrage movement's underlying essentialism, debunking the myth that women were pillars of morality, incorruptible by economic or political influence. In her essay on women's suffrage, Goldman would write, To assume that woman would succeed in purifying something which is not susceptible to purification is to credit her with supernatural powers. Jonathan McKenzie and Craig Stellabaum in their essay Manufacturing Consensus, Goldman, Kropotkin and the Order of an Anarchist Canon state that Goldman refutes the idea that somehow women will improve the state and government, that somehow by their intervention a number of problems will be fixed. She does not contend that women should not vote because of some inequality. She agrees that they are perfectly capable of handling the responsibility, but rather that by participating in a corrupt system, one only ensures its lasting success. She provides examples of states in which women are allowed to vote or participate highly in government that have not escaped the evils she sees inherent in it. Democracy and suffrage merely help to quell the masses even more easily because such gains provide them with the important illusion of freedom while they still toil away for scraps at the table. This issue is obviously incredibly complex and it's interesting to read those who see Goldman as being anti-feminist or seeing the alignment in her view in this with conservative ideals. If this discussion is interesting to you, I'd recommend Vice's book that includes all the essays I've quoted here. Um, but needless to say, I've simplified a lot of what was said by just quoting out these little bits and I've probably misunderstood stuff. So um, don't take this as gospel. So... During this time, I'm going to say this time because Goldman's autobiography doesn't include too many dates, 
Goldman experienced intense period pain and was advised by a specialist that she needed an operation. He was surprised that Goldman had been able to withstand her condition for so long and that she'd been able to have physical contact at all. Unless she had the operation, he stated she would never be free from pain or experience full sexual release. Without the operation, she would also be unable to have a child. Goldman writes, A child. I had loved children madly ever since I could remember. As a little girl, I used to look with envious eyes on the strange little babies our neighbour's daughter played with, dressing them up and putting them to sleep. I was told they were not real babies, they were only dolls, although to me they were living things because they were so beautiful. I longed for dolls, but I never had any. However, in recalling the cruelty she endured from her parents, Goldman states that I had learned since then that my tragic childhood had been no exception, that there were thousands of children born unwanted, marred and maimed by poverty, and still more by ignorant misunderstanding. No child of mine should ever be added to those unfortunate victims. Penny A. Weiss, in her essay, Who Were Emma Goldman's Children, Anarchist Feminism and Childhood, writes that Goldman mentioned children in nearly everything she wrote, which itself is uncommon, perhaps even unprecedented in the history of political thought. Children were always present in her landscape, whether she was writing about prostitution or patriotism, employment or education, marriage or morality, syndicalism or the state, the relevance of these topics to children and of children to these topics comes through repeatedly. Critically, the mention that children get is not merely in passing, but actually affects the substance of her argument. For example, in writing about prostitution, Goldman sees child prostitution as an intrinsic part of the institution. Her acknowledgement of that aspect of the practice allows her to connect prostitution not only to economic realities, which is her take on the subject with which we are perhaps most familiar, but also to issues such as sex education, double standards on sexual activity and child-rearing practices. Because she wrestles with the existence of the child prostitute, her analysis of prostitution ends up being much fuller, reckoning with complex relationships between seemingly discrete social practices. The same might be said of her analysis of patriotism, which is richer for its addressing how governments manipulate both children and childish adults into sacrificing for the state and seeing their own as superior to other states. It can also be said, to make clear the pattern, of her analysis of the family, which considers among many other things the costs to children of overworked parents, of family traditions and of loveless marriages. Goldman does not just mention children in passing then, she seems to stop and talk with them and they affect what she consequently says. Fleiss concludes that we live in a world that thinks Emma Goldman is wrong about children. Many abuses of children get understood as such fairly easily. For example, we are saddened by young children who are put to work or made to bear arms and by those who are sexually exploited or denied an education. But if Goldman is right, then our mistreatment of them includes not only child labour, but also the way we train children for labour. If Goldman is right, our problems include not only sexual abuse, but also denial of sex education, of sexual freedom and of sexual choice. If Goldman is correct, we need to address not only lack of access to education, but also education that takes from children much of what makes life worth living, creativity, individuality and experimentation. If Goldman has captured things rightly, we are wrong not only for sending children to war, but also for training them in nationalism and patriotism that would justify and garner their support for future wars. So for Goldman, there was another reason why she didn't intend to have children. She felt that in order to be true to her ideals, to fulfil that mission, I must remain unhampered and untied. Years of pain and of suppressed longing for a child, what would they compared with the price many martyrs had already paid? I too would pay the price. I would endure suffering. I would find an outlet for my mother need in the love of all children. So consequently, the operation did not take place. Uh, during those weeks, Fedger and Goldman became lovers. 
It had grown clear to me that my feelings for Fedja had no bearing on my love for Sasha. Each called out different emotions in my being, took me into different worlds. They created no conflict. They only brought fulfilment. When she told Sasha about her love for Fedja, his response was bigger and more beautiful than she had expected, telling her that he believed in her freedom to love. He was aware of his possessive tendencies and hated them like everything else he'd got from his bourgeois background. Uh, I think I also read that Goldman felt that she also had this possessiveness and jealousy inside of her, but didn't include this in her autobiography. It was only sort of found in the letters that she'd wrote to Sasha. Um, I cannot remember what the source was of that, so that might not be correct. When Fedger came home, the boys embraced. The three of them then made a pact to dedicate themselves to the cause in some supreme deed, to die together if necessary, or to continue to live and work for the ideal for which one of us might have to give his life. In May 1892, Goldman and Sasha became aware of the conflict between the Carnegie Steel Company and its workers at the Homestead Steel Mill, represented by the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers Union. This would eventually lead to the Homestead Strike on the 6th of July 1892. For this, I've used Joseph Adamjek's contribution to the Britannia Encyclopedia and also some quotes from Emma Goldman and some bits from Wikipedia. Uh, therefore, this isn't particularly detailed. Uh, I can't guarantee that it's accurate, but hopefully the main points come across. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a real hodgepodge amalgamation. But anyway, so Goldman explains that the Carnegie Steel Company enjoyed unprecedented prosperity in the 1880s and 1890s because of a high tariff on imported steel that had greatly boomed the American steel industry and the fact that the Carnegie Steel Company practically held a monopoly. In 1901, nine years after the Homestead strike, Andrew Carnegie would sell the company and become the richest American. Um, even today, he's still one of the richest Americans in history. On his Wikipedia page, the introduction makes lots of notes of his philanthropy, while the Homestead strike only appears in the controversies section. So uh, make of that what you will. During this time of vast growth, several unions at mills and industrial plants were broken across the country. However, the Homestead Steel Mill located a few miles from Pittsburgh, was represented by the aforementioned Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers, which was a powerful union. Goldman states that it was one of the biggest and most efficient labour bodies of the country, consisting mostly of Americans, men of decision and grit, who would assert their rights. The Carnegie Company, on the other hand, was a powerful corporation known as a hard master. Goldman explains that the workers required long training and high skill. Wages were arranged between the company and the union according to a sliding scale based on the prevailing market price of steel products. This agreement was set to expire on the 1st of July 1892, and the workers called for an increase in wages due to the higher market prices and enlarged output of the mills. At this time, Andrew Carnegie had retired to his castle in Scotland and had left Henry Clay Frick in charge. Goldman describes Frick as a man known for his enmity to labour. Frick was also the owner of extensive coke fields where unions were prohibited and the workers were ruled with an iron hand. So it was Frick's job to break the union. He began by abolishing the sliding scale, cutting the workers' wages. He would not recognise the union and not treat the employees collectively. Workers would need to apply for work individually and the pay would be arranged with every worker separately. In late June, a barbed wire fence was erected around the plant. On the 2nd of July, Frick fired all 3,800 workers. At this time, Goldman read the headline of a newspaper which said, Latest developments in Homestead. Families of strikers evicted from the company houses. Women in confinement carried out into the street by sheriffs. Um, so Goldman says, I read over the man's shoulders Frick's dictum to the workers. 
He would rather see them dead than concede to their demands, and he threatened to import Pinkerton detectives. So Pinkerton is a, this is what I got from Wikipedia, a private security guard and detective agency established in the United States by Scotsman Alan Pinkerton in 1850. Pinkerton became famous when he claimed to have foiled the plot to assassinate President-elect Abraham Lincoln. During the labour strikes of the late 19th century, early 20th and early 21st centuries, businessmen hired the Pinkerton Agency to infiltrate unions, supply guards, keep strikers and suspected unionists out of factories, and recruit goon squads to intimidate workers. In the early hours of the 6th of July 1892, Pinkerton agents hired by Frick travelled up the river in two covered barges to occupy the plant. It was clear that the next step was for the workers to be placed by scabs, non-union workers. Therefore, thousands of workers and their families stormed the plant before dawn and rushed the pier where the Pinkerton agents were trying to dock. Shots were fired and the intensive exchange lasted for 12 hours. From Goldman's account, when the barge got within range, the Pinkertons had opened fire without warning, killing a number of homestead men on the shore, among them a little boy and wounding scores of others. Eventually, the workers accepted the surrender of the Pinkertons, who were taken to the local jail after being beaten heavily by the workers. Uh, the Pinkertons were then released from jail that night. Over the course of the events, at least three Pinkertons and several workers were killed. The workers' control of the steel mill did not last. Frick asked Pennsylvania Governor Robert Emery Patterson for help. He sent 8,500 soldiers of the State National Guard. The plant was turned over to the militiamen on July the 12th, and by the 15th the plant was operational, but with replacement workers. To Goldman and Sasha, this sounded the awakening of the American worker, the long-awaited day of his resurrection. They believed that the native toiler had risen, he was beginning to feel his mighty strength, he was determined to break the chains that held him in bondage so long. Their hearts were fired with admiration for the men of Homestead. Goldman and Sasha were working 18-hour days making boys' jumpers. Uh, they were raising funds in order for them to travel back to Russia, as they had heard of atrocities occurring there. On the advice of their landlord, they started an ice cream parlour and started making decent money from it. But after hearing of the strike, they determined that it was Homestead, not Russia, where they needed to be. And they left the ice cream store to the landlord, who couldn't understand why they would give up such a profitable venture. Uh, originally, the plan was to find someone who could translate their manifesto into English, uh, print lots of copies, and then get those to the steel workers. However, upon hearing of the slaughter of the steel workers by the Pinkertons, they determined that the time for their manifesto had passed. Sasha announced, Frick is the responsible factor in this crime. He must be made to stand the consequences. Goldman agreed that the whole country was considering Frick the perpetrator of a cold-blooded murder. A blow aimed at Frick would re-echo in the poorest hovel, would call the attention of the whole world to the real cause behind the homestead struggle. It would also strike terror in the enemy's ranks and make them realise that the proletariat of America had its avengers. It was decided that they would assassinate Frick. Fox states that while Emma's belief in political violence was clear from her autobiography, some, including myself, and I'm quoting Falk here, chose not to see the extent to which those beliefs permeated her life. What we focused on instead was Goldman's strong advocacy of women's independence. We held her as a model of a truly liberated woman devoted to freedom for all and to peace. It does seem to be the case that most of the writers that I've read who aren't anarchists, and that's, I think, all the people I've read aren't anarchists, uh, they don't focus on this aspect of Goldman's philosophy head-on, uh, or at least they're conflicted by it. Falk tries to contextualise Goldman's views on violence, stating that the 1880s 
through the 1910s saw an escalating culture of violence with a rash of fatal attacks by company guards, private detectives and state militia against striking workers. Gone was harassed, plagued by death threats, always on edge. Falk then builds on this, stating that Goldman lived in an era permeated by violence, which erupted not only in the government's use of force to suppress dissent and labour unrest, but also in efforts by militant radicals to destroy a corrupt old order, set on clearing the way for a more equitable order to emerge. Could she have found more peaceful ways to counter injustice and heal the wounds of a social war between the rich and the poor, or did the brutality surrounding her limit her strategies for change? Remnants of these troubling dilemmas lingered on for Goldman and continue to plague our world today. Haunting contemporary parallels suggest that we too must find ways to transcend ingrained patterns of conflict if we are ever to break the accelerating cycle of violence. Bernice A. Carroll, in her essay Emma Goldman and the Theory of Revolution, states that Goldman wrote that she wished she could take the position of Tolstoy and Gandhi, that armed defence would be inconsistent with the revolution. Emotionally, I really do. I feel violence in whatever form never has and probably never will bring constructive results. By her own account, Goldman considered anarchism to be the only philosophy of peace, the only theory of a social relationship that values human life above all else. It was only in response to the violence of the state that violence was necessary. In her words, it is the terrible economic inequality and great political injustice that prompts such acts of violence, not anarchism. It may be worth noting here, I don't know if it's relevant, that uh, just as a little tidbit, that in 1917, Goldman co-founded the No Conscription League and spoke against the First World War and the draft. In her book, My Disillusionment in Russia, Goldman clarifies her opinions on violence in relation to the Russian Revolution, and she continued to do so in My Further Disillusionment in Russia, and once again in relation to the 1936 Spanish Civil War. So Sasha had never made bombs before, so used most book the Science of Revolutionary Warfare, as a guide, his plan was to use a timed device that would enable him to kill Frick, yet save himself. Uh, not because he wanted to escape, no, he wanted to live long enough to justify his act in court so that the American people might know that he was not a criminal, but an idealist. Goldman and Fedya pleaded to go with him, but Sasha insisted that it was unnecessary and criminal to waste three lives on one man. Fox states that Goldman's account of the assassination attempt just being organised by Berkman, Goldman and Fedya was shown to be false in letters she wrote years later, which uh, there was a complex and sophisticated web of people involved. So this is from her autobiography, this is her listening to Berkman speak. So she says, I hung on his lips, his clarity, his calmness and force. The sacred fire of his ideal enthralled me, held me spellbound. Turning to me, he continued in his deep voice. I was the born speaker, the propagandist, he said. I could do a great deal for his act. I could articulate its meaning to the workers. I could explain that he had no personal grievance with Frick, that as a human being, Frick was no less to him than anyone else. Frick was a symbol of wealth and power, of the injustice and wrong of the capitalistic class, as well as personally responsible for the shedding of the workers' blood. Sasha's act would be directed against Frick, not as a man, but as the enemy of labour. Surely I must see how important it was that I remain behind to plead the meaning of his deed and its message throughout the country. Every word he said beat upon my brain like a sledgehammer. The longer he talked, the more conscious I became of the terrible fact that he had no need of me in his last great hour. The realisation swept away everything else. Message, cause, duty, propaganda. What meaning could these things have compared with the force that had made Sasha flesh of my flesh and blood of my blood from the moment that I had heard his voice and felt the grip of his hand at our first meeting. 
Had our three years together shown him so little of my soul that he could tell me calmly to go on living after he had been blown to pieces or strangled to death? Is it not true love, not ordinary love, but the love that longs to share to the uttermost with the beloved? Is it not more compelling than aught else? Despite Goldman's desire to go with Berkman, they ran out of money as the bombs that Sasha made did not work. So they said their goodbyes on the train platform. Uh, Goldman writes, The train moved. Sasha loosened my hold, gently helping me to jump off the step. I ran after the vanishing train, waving and calling to him, Sasha, Sashenka. The steaming monster disappeared round the bend and I stood glued, straining after it, my arms outstretched for the precious life that was being snatched away from me. So Goldman was finding it difficult to find somewhere to live. One place, didn't ask any questions, I guess, in the application. And she managed to get a room there. Uh, she soon came to realise that she was living in a brothel. And she was able to make an income by sewing dresses for the other women. Falk states that rather than accept the commonplace view of prostitutes as perpetrators of a sinful crime, Goldman defended them as victims of a system of economic exploitation and exclusion of women from the workforce as a consequence. Alex Kate Shawman, in her essay Dancing in the Revolution, Emma Goldman's Feminism, also states that the radical journal she founded and edited for more than a decade, Mother Earth, was once suppressed by the government because of an article she wrote on prostitution. In relation to Goldman's 1910 essay in Traffic in Women, Shawman asserts that Goldman had sympathy for sex workers because of their class and because they defied the sexual hypocrisy of Puritanism. After Berkman's departure, Goldman quickly determined that she would become a sex worker in order to raise money for him. However, the thought revolted her, and so she chastised herself for being a weakling and a coward. After several hours, her mind was made up. However, the first man she went with determined that she didn't have the knack for prostitution and instead gave her $10. Goldman writes, I had met two categories of men, vulgarians and idealists. The former would never have let an opportunity pass to possess a woman, and they would give her no other thought save sexual desire. The idealists stoutly defended the equality of the sexes, at least in theory, but the only men among them who practiced what they preached were the Russian and Jewish radicals. This man, who had picked me up on the street and who was now with me in the back of a saloon, seemed an entirely new thing. He interested me. He must be rich. But would a rich man give something for nothing? The manufacturer Garson came to my mind. He would not even give me a small raise in wages. So, um, Goldman writes, In the early afternoon of Saturday the 23rd, Fedya rushed into my room of a newspaper. There it was, in large black letters, young man by the name of Alexander Berkman shoots Frick, assassin overpowered by working men after desperate struggle. Working men? Working men overpowering Sasha? The paper was lying. He did the act for the working men. They would never attack him. Hurriedly, we secured all the afternoon editions. Everyone had a different description, but the main facts stood out. Our brave Sasha had committed the act. Frick was still alive, but his wounds were considered fatal. He would probably not survive the night. And Sasha, they would kill him. They were going to kill him, I was sure of it. Was I going to let him die alone? Should I go on talking while he was being butchered? I must pay the same price as he. I must stand the consequences. I must share the responsibility. So I'm going to read an account of the assassination attempt from Paul Averich and Karen Averich's book, Sasha and Emma, The Anarchist Odyssey of Alexander Berkman and Emma Goldman. Um, it's quite long, so I hope I'm not taking the piss in uh, reading so much of their work. Uh, but this seemed a better option than putting it into my words and avoid how I messed up the uh, homestead strike bit. Um, I'll link to the book in the description. So Berkman had been a bundle of nerves and had loitered about Frick's building for a large part of the day. 
Frick returned from lunch at 1.30, went briefly to a fifth floor room, descended to the second floor, then seated himself in his office with John Leishman, vice chairman of Carnegie Steel. Berkman, standing outside the building, watched as Frick came back from lunch. He hurried upstairs to the second floor and nearly collided with his target emerging from the elevator. Berkman was unable to gather his wits and pull out his gun. Frick, unaware of the danger, continued on into his office. Berkman entered the reception room and handed his card to the attendant, who withdrew into Frick's office and told his boss that the New York employment agent who had called before was back again and wished a moment's audience. Berkman, increasingly agitated, stepped out of the reception room. Then he steeled himself, retraced his steps, pushed past the attendant and burst into Frick's office. There sat Frick, engaged in conversation with Leishman. Berkman reached into his pocket and drew out the revolver as Frick began to rise from his chair. At that moment, it occurred to Sasha that Frick might be wearing an armoured vest, so he aimed the weapon at Frick's head. Frick averted his face as Berkman pulled the trigger. The bullet grazed the lobe of Frick's left ear, entered his neck at a downward angle and lodged under his right shoulder blade. Frick dropped to his knees and slumped against a chair. As Berkman moved closer, Leishman, a small man, jumped in from behind. Unwilling to fire upon Leishman, he shook himself loose and aimed at Frick again. The second bullet caught Frick on the right side of the neck and embedded itself below the left shoulder. Berkman was pointing the weapon for a third shot when Leishman caught his wrist and pulled his hand upward so that the bullet went into the ceiling. Leishman and Berkman grappled furiously. Frick, dazed and bleeding from his wounds, nevertheless struggled to his feet, seized Berkman around the waist and brought all three tumbling to the floor. Berkman managed to work his left hand free and drew his dagger from his pocket. With this, he stabbed Frick in quick succession in the side above the hip bone, again in the lower back and a third time in the thigh above the knee. The blade wounds were deep and serious and Frick cried out in pain. Hearing the commotion, a carpenter who had been working in the building rushed in and hit Berkman on the back of the head with a hammer. The blow only stunned Sasha and he continued to stab at Frick. The shots, sharp and distinct, had sounded all over the building, across the avenue and out in the street, where the struggle was witnessed by pedestrians staring up from the sidewalk. In a minute, Frick's office was filled with people, clerks, workers in overalls, policemen, Frick's attendant, an assortment of shouting individuals. Berkman, slight but fiercely strong, continued to resist, and it took several more men to overpower him. His arms were pulled and twisted until he was pinioned on the floor, and his captors set about punishing him severely. A deputy sheriff, who happened to be in the building at the time of the attack, drew his revolver and aimed it at Sasha. Don't shoot, called Frick, with singular poise. Leave him to the law, but raise his head and let me see his face. An officer jerked Berkman's head by the hair. Mr Frick, he asked, do you identify the man as your assailant? Frick nodded without a word. Sasha stared at Frick, taking in his victim. His face is ashen grey. He saw the black beard is streaked with red and blood is oozing from his neck. Fleetingly, Frick was no longer merely a symbol, a means to an end, but a man wounded and weak. For an instant, a strange feeling as of shame comes over me, Berkman later wrote. But the next moment I am filled with anger at that sentiment, so unworthy of a revolutionist. So, um, Averich and Averich's book describes how the crowd was hostile to Berkman as he was taken to police headquarters. Um, by Goldman's own account at the beginning of the strike, the sympathy of the entire country was with the men, 
Even the most conservative part of the press condemned Frick for his arbitrary and drastic methods and how the wanton murders aroused even the daily papers. However, most accounts I've read, and it's not a huge number, so this could be wrong, um, expressed that public support had moved away from the strikers as a result of how they had treated the captured Pinkertons and Berkman's assassination attempt at Frick. Uh, this dramatic change of public opinion was one factor that led to the collapse of the strike. This is not a viewpoint that I found in Goldman's autobiography. So um, on the 21st of November, the union gave up. Um, some of its members reapplied for jobs at the mill, agreeing to 12-hour days and reduced wages. And the Wikipedia page for the strike describes this as a pivotal event in US labour history. Also, Goldman doesn't examine what the Britannica Encyclopedia describes as the racial overtones that began in the fall of 1892, because as the union banned black Americans from joining, many black Americans were strike breakers who, even with the lower wages, would have received more than their usual salary. The Britannia Encyclopedia states that another riot took place that pitted some 2,000 white workers against African-American workers and their families, and several people were severely wounded by gunfire. So in the aftermath of the assassination attempt, the newspapers began a ferocious campaign against the anarchists, and Goldman's name began to appear daily in the most sensational stories. Even most magazine Freiheit started printing attacks on Berkman and Goldman. Uh, Goldman's response to this was printed in The Anarchist, in which she demanded an explanation and branded most a traitor. After receiving no response, Goldman bought a horsewhip and sat in the front row of one of most lectures. She faced the audience and declared, I came to demand proof of your insinuations against Alexander Berkman. Most mumbled something, and so Goldman jumped at him, lashing him in the face and neck. Berkman decided to defend himself as true Russian and European revolutionists did. However, Goldman was worried that his English was too poor to be effective in court. Upon discovering that Frick hadn't been killed, Berkman was crushed. However, this didn't tell that he couldn't be condemned to death. Which I don't think it was, I think he was quite happy to be condemned to death. But anyway, um, Berkman wrote to Goldman telling her of how he'd repeatedly asked to be told the date of his trial, but was not given any information. On the 19th of September, 1892, he was asked to get ready and taken to the courtroom. Nobody he knew had been told of the date, so there was no friendly face present. Berkman objected to the six indictments, including one charging him with the attempt on Leishman's life. He demanded that he be tried on the one charge of trying to kill Frick, but his objection was overruled. The jury announced their guilty verdict without leaving their seats. The assumption was that he would get, I think, around seven years, but with his sentence passed on all counts, including three indictments for entering a building with felonious intent, this was increased to 21 years, the same as Berkman's current age. He would then serve an additional year at the Allegheny County Workhouse for carrying concealed weapons. In prison, Sasha became suicidal, but his reawakened interest in life came upon the discovery that he would be allowed one visit a month from a close relative. He asked Goldman if he could get his sister from Russia to come see him. Goldman knew what he meant and so visited the prison pretending to be his married sister. However, after the meeting, Goldman was recognised, so she wasn't allowed to visit him again. During a meeting regarding the commutation of Sasha's sentence, Goldman noticed the steady gaze of a man in the audience. She came to learn that the gaze belonged to Edward Brady. He had recently been released from jail in Austria after 10 years for the publication of illegal anarchist material. Goldman describes him as the most scholarly person she'd ever met, and unlike most, was not limited to social and political subjects. So she writes, Our friendship gradually ripened into love. 
Ed became indispensable to me. I had known for a long time that he also cared for me. Of unusual reserve, he had never spoken of his love, but his eyes and his touch were eloquent of it. He had had women in his life before, one of them had given him a daughter who was living with her mother's parents. He felt grateful to those women, he would often say. They had taught him the mysteries and subtleties of sex. I could not follow Ed when he spoke of these matters, and I was too shy to ask for an explanation, but I used to wonder what he meant. Sex had seemed a simple process to me. My own sex life had always left me dissatisfied, longing for something I did not know. I considered love more important than all else, love which finds supreme joy in selfless giving. In the arms of Ed, I learned for the first time the meaning of the great life-giving force. I understood its full beauty and I eagerly drank its intoxicating joy and bliss. It was an ecstatic song, profoundly soothing by its music and perfume. My little flat in the building known as the Bohemian Republic, to which I had moved lately, became a temple of love. Often, the thought would come to me that so much peace and beauty could not last. It was too wonderful, too perfect. Then I would cling to Ed with a trembling heart. He would hold me close, and his unfailing cheer and humour would dispel my dark thoughts. You are overworked, he would say. The machine and your constant anxiety about Sasha are killing you. Goldman's health deteriorated, she lost a lot of weight and grew too weak to walk across the room. Physicians and friends convinced her to go to Rochester for rest and a change of climate. Though her sister Helena's place was too small and so Goldman lived elsewhere, she was cared for by her sister who took her to see a lung specialist. There, she was diagnosed with an early stage of tuberculosis. Goldman began to recover and was to live in a sanatorium during the winter. However, the situation in New York changed her mind. The industrial crisis of that year, referred to now as the Panic of 1893, would lead to 35% of New Yorkers being unemployed. Goldman writes that jobless workers were being evicted, suffering was growing and suicides multiplying. Nothing was being done to alleviate their misery. While it was not advisable to return to New York, uh, Goldman herself describes the decision as reckless, she notes that she had grown stronger, gained weight, coughed less, and her hemorrhages had stopped. I knew, however, that I was far from well, but something stronger than reason was drawing me back to New York. I longed for Ed, but more compelling was the call of the unemployed, of the workers of the East Side who had given me my labour baptism. I had been with them in their previous struggles, I could not stay away from them now. I wired Ed and he met me joyously, but when I told him that I had returned to devote myself to the unemployed, his mood changed. It was insanity, he urged. It would mean the loss of everything I had gained in health through my rest. It might even prove fatal. He would not permit it. I was his now, his to love and protect and watch over. I'll contrast Ed's view with a quote from Emma Goldman's 1910 essay, Woman's Suffrage, in which she says, Her development, her freedom, her independence must come through herself. First, by asserting herself as a personality and not as a sex commodity. Second, by refusing the right to anyone over her body, by refusing to bear children unless she wants them, by refusing to be a servant to God, the state, society, the husband, the family, etc. By making her life simpler, but deeper and richer, that is, by trying to learn the meaning and substance of life in all its complexities, by freeing herself from the fear of public opinion and public condemnation. Only that, and not the ballot, will set woman free, will make her a force hitherto unknown in the world, a force of real love, for peace, for harmony, a force for divine fire, of life-giving, a creator of free men and women.
So back in New York, Goldman returned to organising committee sessions, public meetings, collections of food stuff for the homeless and their children, and a mass meeting on Union Square. This took place on Monday the 21st of August 1893. The meeting was preceded by a demonstration in which Goldman carried a red banner with the girls and women at the front. She then read her speech, um, so now I'm going to quote from her autobiography. So she says, I had prepared my speech in writing and it seemed to me inspiring. But when I reached Union Square and saw the huge mass of humanity, my notes appeared cold and meaningless. The atmosphere in the ranks had become very tense, owing to the events of that week. Labour politicians had appealed to the New York legislator for relief of the great distress, but their pleas met with evasions. Meanwhile, the unemployed went on starving. The people were outraged by this callous indifference to the suffering of men, women and children. As a result, the air at Union Square was charged with bitterness and indignation, its spirit quickly communicating itself to me. I was scheduled as the last speaker and I could barely endure the long wait. Finally, the apologetic oratory was over and my turn came. I heard my name shouted from a thousand throats as I stepped forward. I saw a dense mass before me, their pale, pinched faces upturned to me. My heart beat, my temples throbbed and my knees shook. Men and women, I began amid sudden silence. Do you not realise that the state is the worst enemy you have? It is a machine that crushes you in order to sustain the ruling class, your masters. Like naive children, you put your trust in your political leaders. You make it possible for them to creep into your confidence, only to have them betray you to the first bidder. But even where there is no direct betrayal, the Labour politicians make common cause with your enemies to keep you in leash, to prevent your direct action. The state is the pillar of capitalism and it is ridiculous to expect any redress from that. Do you not see the stupidity of asking relief from Albany with immense wealth within a stone's throw from here? Fifth Avenue is laid in gold. Every mansion is a citadel of money and power. Yet there you stand, a giant starved and fettered, shorn of his strength. Cardinal Manning long ago proclaimed that necessity knows no law and that the starving man has a right to share of his neighbour's bread. Cardinal Manning was an ecclesiastic steeped in the traditions of the church, which has always been on the side of the rich against the poor. But he had some humanity and he knew that hunger is a compelling force. You too will have to learn that you have a right to share your neighbour's bread. Your neighbours, they have not only stolen your bread, but they are sapping your blood. They will go on robbing you, your children and your children's children unless you wake up, unless you become daring enough to demand your rights. Well then, demonstrate before the palaces of the rich demand work. If they do not give you work, demand bread. If they deny you both, take bread. It is your sacred right. Uproarious applause, wild and deafening, broke from the stillness like a sudden storm. The sea of hands eagerly stretching out towards me seemed like the wings of white birds fluttering. The following morning, Goldman was in Philadelphia to secure relief and help organise the unemployed there. The afternoon papers gave what she described as a garbled account of her speech, claiming that she had urged the crowd to revolt. Um, There were many contradictory accounts of her speech published and her autobiography she wrote years and years later. I think most of it from memory, so I don't know to what extent we can see that as a reliable uh, account of her speech. But anyway, the paper said, Red Emma has great swaying power. Her vitriolic tongue was just what the ignorant mob needed to tear down New York. Soon, the papers were reporting that Goldman's whereabouts had been discovered and that detectives were on their way to Philadelphia with a warrant for her arrest. As she was unknown in Philadelphia, Goldman decided to speak as planned at the meeting hall. 
Outside, she was greeted by a fellow anarchist. Goldman tried to wave him aside, but a heavy hand was immediately on her shoulder. The voice announced, you're under arrest, Miss Goldman. Given the choice of riding in the patrol wagon or walking to the police station, Goldman chose to walk. At the police headquarters, she was locked up for the night. As she refused to, of her own free will, return to New York with the detectives, she was first held at the police headquarters and then at Moya Mensing Prison until her extradition could be arranged. On the second day, Goldman called for the matron. As nobody came, she banged her tin cup against the door. The matron informed Goldman that she would be punished if she continued to make noise and when asked, told Goldman that she hadn't received any mail. Goldman knew that she was lying as Ed would have definitely written to her. Um, Goldman then requested for a book and was given the Bible, which she then flung back at the matron's feet, stating that she had no need of religious lies. Uh, Once again, the matron threatened to punish her until Goldman informed her that she was a prisoner of the state of New York, that she had not yet been tried and still had civil rights. The matron slammed the door shut. On the journey to New York, the detective sergeant introduced himself, saying that he was only doing his duty and that he had six children to support. To this, Goldman asked why he had not chosen a more honourable occupation. Over their dinner, the sergeant told her that he would be able to help her get free, even receive a large sum of money if she would only be sensible. His chief would close her case if she would give way a little, nothing much, just a short periodic report of what was going on in radical circles and among the workers on the east side. Goldman writes, A horrible feeling came over me. The food nauseated me. I gulped down some ice water from my glass and threw what was left into the detective's face. You miserable cur, I shouted. Not enough that you ask as a Judas, you even try to turn me into one. You and your rotten chief, I'll take prison for life, but no one will ever buy me. The next morning when they arrived, the chief was furious. He told Goldman that he would put her away for years. Goldman responded that the whole country should learn how corrupt the chief of police of New York can be. To this, he raised his chair as if to strike her before thinking better of it. Goldman was sentenced to one year in Blackwell's Island Penitentiary. This, in 1893, was the first time that Emma Goldman was jailed, but it wasn't the last. She was also incarcerated in 1901, 1916, 1918, 1919 and 1921. Jason Welling, in his essay Anarchy and Interpretation, The Life of Emma Goldman, writes that the charges range from inciting to riot, as it was in this case, to advocating the use of birth control, to opposition to World War I. In fact, Shulman states, this outspoken enemy of capitalism, the state, and the family, was arrested so often that she never spoke in public without taking along a book to read in jail. While in Blackwell's Island Penitentiary, Goldman was asked to state her religion by a matron. She replied, none, I am an atheist. Atheism was prohibited, and so she needed to attend church. To this, Goldman replied that I would do nothing of the kind. I did not believe in anything the church stood for, and, not being a hypocrite, I would not attend. Besides, I came from Jewish people. Was there a synagogue? Uh, As Goldman was the only Jewish female prisoner at Blackwell's, she could not be permitted to go among so many men in the synagogue. Mackenzie and Stahlbaum write that Goldman saw religion, and specifically Christianity, as being one of the most important elements in the maintenance of the status quo. Years later, in the April 1913 edition of the Mother Earth Journal, Goldman would write, Christianity is most admirably adapted to the training of slaves, to the perpetuation of a slave society. In short, to the very conditions confronting us today. The rulers of the earth have realised long ago what potent poison inheres in the Christian religion. That is the reason they foster it. 
That is why they leave nothing undone to instill it in the blood of the people. They know only too well that the subtleness of the Christian teachings is a more powerful protection against rebellion and discontent than the club or the gun. Mackenzie and Stahlbaum continue that the happenings of the now mean little when faced off against eternity, so there is no incentive to push beyond the boundaries of what is to something that could be. Christianity, and religion generally, is an enemy of change and anything that is against change tends to be for the state. In her autobiography, Goldman speaks of her experience in prison, the deprivation and feeling of suffocation that she experienced. Uh, instead, I'm going to quote from her essay, Prisons, A Social Crime and Failure, which is included in Anarchism and Other Essays, in which she writes, With all our boasted reforms, our great social changes and our far-reaching discoveries, human beings continue to be sent to the worst of hells, wherein they are outraged, degraded and tortured that society may be protected from the phantoms of its own making. Prison, a social protection. What monstrous mind ever conceived such an idea? Just as well say that health can be promoted by a widespread contagion. So in prison, Goldman was put in charge of the sewing shop, but was told by the head matron that she wasn't getting enough work out of the rest of the inmates. Goldman refused to become a slave driver, knowing that a likely punishment would be that she would have to stand in a corner facing a blackboard for hours. Considering this punishment to be petty and insulting, Goldman determined that she would increase her offence in order to be put in the dungeon if required. Uh, the other inmates soon heard of Goldman's refusal. and They had not been unkind to her previously, but had been a bit standoffish to the anarchist who didn't believe in God. Afterwards, in the allowed hour, Goldman would always have visitors who would offer to wash her clothes or darn her stockings. Uh, after recovering again from illness, Goldman was recruited and taught by the doctor to work as a nurse. Uh, she writes, The ward contained 16 beds, most of them always filled. The various diseases were treated in the same room, from grave operations to tuberculosis, pneumonia and childbirth. My hours were long and strenuous, the groans of the patients nerve-wracking, but I loved my job. It gave me opportunity to come close to the sick women and bring a little cheer into their lives. There were a few exceptions, of course, but the majority had nothing. They never had had anything before, and they would have nothing on their release. They were derelicts on the social dung heap. Goldman would spend 10 months inside Blackwell's Island Penitentiary. She stated that it provided the best school, a more painful but a more vital school. Here I had been brought close to the depths and complexities of the human soul. Here I had found ugliness and beauty, meanness and generosity. Here too, I had learned to see life through my eyes and not through those of Sasha, Most or Ed. The prison had been the crucible that tested my faith. It helped me to discover strength in my own being, the strength to stand alone, the strength to live my life and fight for my ideals against the whole world if need be. The state of New York could have rendered me no greater service than by sending me to Blackwell's Island Penitentiary. Goldman found adjusting to life outside of prison, always being surrounded by people, to be difficult. Uh, she was to give a speech at the Italia Theatre, but found herself unable to speak. When backstage, she heard the 16-year-old anarchist speaker, Maria Roda. Goldman was impressed by her and so was surprised that Ed didn't share her viewpoint. He admitted that she was ravishing, but he thought her beauty would not endure, much less her enthusiasm for our ideals. Latin women mature young, he said. They grow old with their first child, old in body and spirit. 
Well then, Maria should guard against having children if she wants to devote herself to our movement, I remarked. No woman should do that, Ed replied emphatically. Nature has made her for motherhood. All else is nonsense, artificial and unreal. This, being so counter to Goldman's core beliefs, angered her. Her dream of love and true comradeship suffered a rude awakening, and she considered whether Ed wanted her only as his wife and the bearer of his children. Yet she questioned if she could live without the joy he gave her. Marceau writes that Goldman despised her dependency on Brady, on her own longing for intimacy and affection from another human being. Living outside the boundaries of conventional society and defying all expectations for women made it near impossible for Goldman to achieve the kind of emotional fulfilment she so desperately hoped for. This was certainly not an unusual situation for feminists of the period, particularly for anarchist feminists, as they chose to reject so radically social norms. Uh, A little while after this conversation, Ed stated that he wanted Goldman to give up her platform, but only for her safety. Goldman didn't agree, but she proposed that they live together, no longer separated by silly conventions. Their love would beautify their home, their work would give it meaning. So yep, good example there of they've got an insurmountable difference that they're just going to ignore. Um, It's also worth noting that at this time, Goldman's writing to Berkman frequently, and she talks of him often in her autobiography. Um, It's just that it's so frequent, it's difficult to just pick out a particular individual event to mention in this podcast. But yeah, she's constantly writing to Berkman. After being released from prison, Goldman's celebrity continued to increase. Uh, She no longer thought of America as being barren of idealists, as a land where men and women cared only for material acquisition. Instead, She believed that Americans, once aroused, were as capable of idealism and sacrifice as her Russian heroes and heroines. Therefore, she made the decision to devote herself to propaganda in English, as real social changes could be accomplished only by the natives. I should obviously include reasoning for this change of opinion. Uh, In her autobiography, she mentions being convinced by a John Swinton, Uh, but there's got to be more to it than that. It can't have just been from a chat with one bloke, but um, that's all I've got. So Goldman was earning money as a nurse, which she used to keep herself alive and to support prisoners. Uh, After being advised by Ed, she decided to travel to Vienna in order to train in midwifery and other branches of nursing. However, this wouldn't keep her from her cause. She would also combine this trip with a lecture tour of Scotland and England. On the 15th of August 1895, a 26-year-old Emma Goldman sailed for England. She would also come to England in 1899 and live in London for a few years in the 1920s after marrying her acquaintance, the Scottish anarchist James Colton, in order to obtain British citizenship. Uh, This was after she had been deported from the US by J. Edgar Hoover, uh, but that's much, much later. So this is obviously a crap place to end this episode as there's lots of dangling elements of Goldman's life that have been set up but not resolved. Uh, but that's that's life. I'm going to say this is to entice you to find other sources rather than it just being a complete failure on my part. Um, so I'm going to finish with her a little bit about what Goldman thinks about Britain and then conclude. So um, Emma Goldman noted differences between the British and the Americans. Uh, there were small things like how in Britain speakers would speak outside and they would be heckled by the audience. Goldman wasn't keen on this custom, but she was very good at retorting. Uh, However, the bigger point of comparison is in the following quote, so Anarchist activities in London were not limited to the natives. England was the haven for refugees from all lands, who carried on their work without hindrance. By comparison with the United States, the political freedom in Great Britain seemed like the millennium come. 
but economically, the country was far behind America. I had myself experienced want, and I knew of the poverty in the large industrial centres of the United States. But never had I seen such abject misery and squalor as I did in London, Leeds and Glasgow. Its effects impressed me as not being the result of yesterday or even of years. They were century-old, passed on from generation to generation, apparently rooted in the very marrow of the British masses. One of the most appalling sights was that of able-bodied men running ahead for a cab for blocks to be on the spot in time to open the door for a gentleman. For such services, they would receive a penny or tuppence at most. After a month's stay in England, I understood the reason for so much political freedom. It was a safety valve against the fearful destitution. The British government no doubt felt that as long as it permitted its subjects to let off steam in unhampered talk, there was no danger of rebellion. I could find no other explanation for the inertia and the indifference of the people to their slavish conditions. In the introduction to their collection of essays, Weiss and Kensinger state that Goldman is often not considered an original thinker of major importance as her ideals were influenced by other theorists. They list many examples of authors expressing this opinion and then they highlight the gender bias of this assumption as there are no original thinkers for whom one could not make the same statement. Uh, they quote Pitterim Sorotkin's argument that the theories of Marx and Engels were all published before or simultaneously with the publication of the Communist Manifesto, and no one would say that they weren't original thinkers. Um, as a result of this perception, most of the writing on Goldman has been biographical rather than theoretical. That's an issue with this as well. Another issue talking about Goldman is raised by Kensinger in her essay, Speaking with Red Emma, the Feminist Theory of Emma Goldman in which he says that there is a problem of idolising the life of this remarkable woman in a way that erases her humanity and complexity. Uh, again, this is probably something that I've done by stopping this episode with her being 26 years old. Uh, it's impossible not to think of yourself as shitty by comparison. Um, on top of this, Kensinger describes how James Lowen, in his book Lies My Teachers Told Me, describes the process of heroification whereby real-life flesh-and-blood individuals are transformed into flat heroes divorced from shortcomings, internal conflict, doubts, mistakes, and unpopular opinions. Beyond historical inaccuracy and boredom, Lowen draws out at least two other dangers in heroification. First, the process deprives us of role models as we face contemporary struggles. Humans cannot emulate idols. Um, I think I've already said that I've done that. Second, the messy ideals these heroes advocated within their life become sanitised, decontextualised, or disappeared making it impossible to discuss critically notions of human agency and responsibility. This is also something I've done. So, in conclusion, don't listen to people on the internet. 